0: Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership
1: and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. This is The Athletics of Business podcast, episode 15. Today's special guest is Don Yeager. Don is a nationally acclaimed inspirational speaker, longtime associate editor of Sports Illustrated, and author of over 30 books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestsellers. He began his career at the San Antonio Light in Texas and also worked at the Dallas Morning News and the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville before going to work for Sports Illustrated. As an author, Don has written books with, among others, Hall of Fame running back Walter Payton, UCLA basketball coach John Wooden, baseball legends John Smoltz and Tug McGraw, and football stars Warwick Gunn and Michael Orr, who was featured in the movie The Blind Side. Don left SI in 2008 to pursue a public speaking career that has allowed him to share stories learned from the greatest winners of our generation with audiences as diverse as Fortune 10 companies to cancer survivor groups, where he shares his personal story. More than a quarter million people have heard his talks on what makes the great ones great. He collaborated with the Florida State University School of Businesses continuing education program to build a corporate webinar program focusing on building a culture of success within an organization. This naturally led to another keynote speech on what makes the great teams great. The release of his 11th New York Times bestseller, Teammate, was the inspiration for his newest keynote on what makes a great teammate great, becoming invaluable without being most valuable. Don, thank you so much for joining us today. I am humbled and fired up to have you joining us.
0: Ed, always, a, uh, always a, a pleasure to be in communication with you and kind of catching up.
1: Well, you know, Don, my unbeknownst to you, my relationship with you goes back years to your Sports Illustrated days. I've always enjoyed reading your pieces because it was about so much more than just the facts. There was always a story. And it seemed to me the story always had something to do with greatness. And you and I talk about how you are consumed with greatness. Can you tell us a little bit about how that started, when that started, where that started, and the journey that's taking you on?
0: Sure. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I would tell you that for me, I, this, when I look back and I try to figure out where does this kind of passion for this discussion go or where does it start? Um, for me, it started when I was just graduating from college. I had um, was leaving Indiana. Uh, I was standing there with my dad uh, and was heading to my first job in Texas. And my dad is in the driveway and we're talking and he said, you know, Don, uh, my dad was just filled with this, these amazing little nuggets of wisdom, which probably many fathers are, and most of them don't get credit for it. Right. Right. right uh, exactly. But my father looked at me and he said, you've chosen this profession of journalism as your, uh, as where you're going to go in your career. And as a result, you'll end up in the presence of some really extraordinary people, right? That's what journalists are allowed to do. Right. You're, you're given access.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He says, Always, you'll always be asking the questions you're required to ask um, because that's what you do, do professionally, but always ask one question that will benefit you. Mm-hmm. Always find something you can learn from each one of these winners and people that you'll end up engaged with that will benefit you. What make what will make you better? And um, And so I settled in on a question, which was, Um, if you could name for me a habit, something you believe helped separate you from others, what would that habit be? And then I I ended up keeping a series of notebooks just on the answers the great winners were giving me to that question, looking at what are the habits that the very best credit for uh, the distance between them and next best. Right?
1: How long did it take to you start to see a consistency or a trend, if you will, in answers? Not long at all,
0: frankly. I think what you start to realize is there's a there, um, and I thought that one of the things that really stood out to me was it uh, almost to a person, none of them credited a physical gift for what allowed them to be separate, to separate themselves. There's always somebody bigger, stronger, faster, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what they credited were mental, emotional, and spiritual disciplines, right? The ability to kind of, um, to govern themselves so that others didn't have to. And, uh, and by doing so, uh, uh, and knowing what they were after wanting it more than other people, but doing it in a way that was, um, uh, that, that, that fit their emotional strength. Um, they were able to kind of, um, uh, to, to keep themselves on task and and to be um, to use these habits uh, to to separate themselves from their from those they were competing with
1: so did you become i know if it was me i'd become very conscious of what my habits were and am i am i as good <laughs> at that as i need to be did you ever find that happening
0: oh all the time i yeah. still do i mean yeah. you know the one thing that about that's that's fascinated fascinating me for, uh, it has fascinated me for many years on this subject is there are a lot of people that want greatness to be an endpoint, right? They want a, they want some place where you stake a flag in the, uh, you know, uh, in the, in, uh, in the ice and you say, I've arrived, right? I'm here, I've climbed the mountain or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, what you really grow to understand is that it's not a, um, it's not a destination. It's a journey, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what is fascinating. The, the truly the truly best, John Wooden was 99 and a half right, when I'm sitting there with him. Wow. And he is fascinated by learning from our conversation. He is reaching for texts to try to refresh something that he read 20 years ago. Uh, but he was constantly looking to be better today at 99 and a half than he was yesterday at 99 and 160 days or whatever it was, you know, he was looking, he was looking constantly for that, that daily improvement. I thought, you know, again, you and I are both basketball junkies. So we, we, um, uh, no one, no one approaches the greatness of John Wooden, but what, what really stood out to me was coach Wooden's belief that he, he never arrived. Mm -hmm. He never arrived. Uh, greatness was 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 a desti- was not a destination uh, it, it was a, a pursuit
1: in in all your um, in all your interviews and all the relationships you have developed have you ever met an individual as authentic or as real in believing in and actually acting out that continual, continual learning is so important. I mean, John Wooden, like you said, 99 and a half. And the stories are endless from all the people that uh, were fortunate and blessed enough to cross paths with him. Um, all the way to the end, he'd be at Coach's Clinics taking notes. I mean, have you ever met anybody else as intentional about his? I mean, first of all, John Wooden forgot more about leadership than most people ever know in their lifetime. Right. And have you ever come across anyone quite like Coach Wooden?
0: Well, first off, I would argue that John Wooden didn't forget anything. Well, else. and, and that's why I, mean, I don't like that saying. <laughs> I mean, I know I get the saying, yeah. yeah but yeah, the, but the point like is, uh, the, the craziest thing about right. Coach Wooden, and um, you and I have discussed this. Others on on your podcast may not know it. I had the extraordinary opportunity over the last twelve years of Coach Wooden's life, mm. fly out to California and spend a day with him every other month, um, in which Coach served essentially as my mentor. He was he was diving in to help me grow and become a better Don, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and in those more than 500 hours of recorded conversations, Coach Wooden uh, just poured himself into me. Uh, the thing That's that amazing. struck me is that here's a man, and as I said, I'm with him at 99 and a half, um, who still could recite poetry, right? Who could uh, who could tell you how much time was left on the clock. When a when when one of his players uh, made a decision that, uh, that 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 Coach Wooden still to this day wishes the player hadn't made. I mean, it, you know, and that 40 years earlier, right? These are these are things that happen. So Coach Wooden's um, his mental acuity was off the charts, even to the very end. Uh, his body broke down, and that's what ultimately cost us John Wooden in this world. But um, but he. Uh, um, a, an enormous and was consistent he believed that the reason his mind stayed sharp was he was constantly seeking new things to learn
1: right right and the thing that fascinated me about coach when and we're not going to talk about the mess we have right now with college basketball but he firmly believed that their success their championships were were a byproduct of doing things the right way and doing things a certain way and treating people and serving people. Can you talk into the importance of that, that you see not only in athletics, but in business as well?
0: Well, with that question, a sense of purpose and a belief that you're in service of someone else, um, uh, human nature, right? We are, we are wired as humans to um, respond differently when we believe that what we're doing is an act of service uh, versus, uh, an act of selling or an act of, uh, of work. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so Coach Wooden made it clear that while it was his job to be the leader of UCLA basketball, what he believed his greatest role was, um, was to serve, uh, as a, um, as an individual who set a really high bar, uh, for those who had the chance to be tutored by him, you know? And so, I, you know, I, without question, a servant leader, um, which there wasn't even the phrase back then, was how you would have the best to best define coach.
1: And did he talk to you in those five hundred plus hours of um, recording? Did Did he talk to you at all about the struggles he had in his career? Because everyone thinks of Coach Wooden, they think. Oh man, how easy did he have it? He got the best of the best at UCLA and they just won championships, baby. That's all they did. Did he talk to you about how he continued to grow through his struggles early on in his career?
0: Sure. No. I mean, again, he, you know, he, most people don't realize that he was 14 years at UCLA before he won his first championship. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were periods in that 14 years when uh, alumni and boosters, as happens today, it happened back then, questioned the, um, uh his ability and whether or not he could be the right guy. Um and and challenge the uh the athletic director over over the choice. So John Wooden didn't it didn't happen automatically, it didn't happen quick. It was a I mean, you know, it the, the man uh he paid his dues to get to those amazing that twelve year run at the end of his career where he won ten championships.
1: Well, and, and he represents something that you say, and you're going to laugh. You're, the introduction to your book, Greatness, the 16 Characteristics of True Champions, the introduction of that book alone could be a separate book on greatness. Okay, there is so much value and so much gold in just that introduction alone. It's mind-blowing. And, and on page three, you say something, and, and it's, I tend to highlight things that most people don't highlight, things that just catch you resonate with me. And you say, greatness is a state of being. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, again, this gets to this idea that some people say, "I want to, I want to be great," right? Well, uh, and for some people, greatness is defined by uh, trophies or or uh, some physical uh, uh, um, accoutrement, some some something that says, oh, "I'm the best." What Coach and others really taught me over the course of this journey to learn what greatness was really all about, um, was the greatness was uh, a a sincere desire to to show up better every day than you were the day before. And then in the process of doing that, when you walked into a room, everybody knew you were there, not because you were the greatest winner, not because you had the most trophies or or the medals draped around your neck, but because you literally, you stood differently. Mm-hmm. because you were, because the state of being that you were, uh, that you were in pursuit of something others won't, right. There's a reason why not all, not, not everyone's great because mm-hmm. most people won't do the hard work. Right. Um, mm-hmm. right. uh, most people are, most people, um, uh, acknowledge the challenge and are impressed by those who chase it. Right. But they don't want to do the work themselves.
1: Right. Right. Well, you always have. I'm sure you've had this quite a bit, where folks say, "Gosh, Don, I I want your life. I want to do what you do. I think it's so it's so cool." All right. Well, then do what I've done, and they look at you like you you've got ten heads.
0: Yeah. No, I love. uh, You know, there's a a great story of, about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. uh One year, uh one one day, walking by a man standing on a on a bridge, and the man asked him if uh, Leonardo would uh, would would scrawl a picture, draw draw something really quickly. And he did and he, whatever. And then he asked for some outlandish amount of money for it. And the guy said, that took you three minutes. And he said, no, it didn't. It took me a lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't, yeah. um, but what, what you're what you're buying here. And again, the point ultimately, as I understand the story and I've read it a few times, he, he gives it to the man, but he wanted the man to realize this isn't, you know, none of us are, the, none of us are there is no such thing as an overnight success. Right. Anybody, when you read that phrase, immediately dismiss it.
1: Right. And, and let's talk collectively for a second too, if we can, because you can have the greatest compilation of, of greatness. You can have a bunch of great individuals. And, and we live in a world, in the business world, in the athletic world, uh, a lot of instant gratification. Producer get fired. But you can have, and I think you know where I'm going with this, the greatest group of, of talents. But in order to achieve collective greatness, you still have to have a singleness of purpose. And you have a story that I'd love for you to share about Coach K and what he did with the U.S. men's basketball uh, program. If you will, an organization, um, and how he was able to bring it back from where it went and how it dropped, and what he did to to get that singleness of purpose and that focus collectively again with all that greatness in one room.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean most of your most of your listeners probably will recall that Coach K was um, he was uh, asked to lead USA basketball's program as the coach uh, after the previous two international competitions um, had led the USA had had sent NBA all-star after NBA all-star to, uh, to, and, and and they finished sixth in the world championships. And then they went to uh, Athens, Greece with Tim Duncan and Allen Iverson and Carmelo Anthony. And I mean, this amazing talent and they, and they, and they won the bronze, right? So all this talent, as you said, you can line it all up. Nobody in the world had talent like the United States. But we were finishing sixth and third. What what was and so they brought Coach K in, and what he realized was that, um, uh, in his opinion, um, the best teams are filled with are loaded with patriots—people that believe in what you're doing and they want to be part of what you're doing every day. Right? This isn't a basketball discussion. This is this is much about uh, business or anything else. Right? What is that 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 are you driven by? Is your team driven by something special? Well. That team was not, and he needed to reinforce to them the the sense that they had to feel uh, that they were in service of something bigger than themselves. So he started introducing them to members of the United States military. Started bringing in wounded warriors to talk to the players. Started inviting children whose mother and father were lost in Iraq and Afghanistan to talk to our players. He started giving them a sense that wearing the letters USA on their chest meant more than basketball. And, um, and he culminated, the, the one that most people talk about, he called these feel-it moments, which were his opportunity to, to get his team to feel mm-hmm. who they were in service of, occurred um, in 2012. They were headed to London. And just a couple of days before they were scheduled to leave, he, he gathered the team in Washington, D.C., and he took them to Arlington National Cemetery. And, uh, while there, uh, General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff takes the mm-hmm. team, uh, and he walks them through Arlington and he starts telling them stories about soldiers. And then he takes them further and he takes them to section 60 mm-hmm. at Arlington, which is the freshest graves mm-hmm. there. And while they're all standing there, it's silent. Cause what do you say? Right? Yeah, it's a, right. it's enormous, emotional. Uh, coach K sees a young man standing about 100 feet away and he, he's dressed in civilian clothes, but he's got a crew cut. Um, mm-hmm. Coach assumes he's a member of the military. Uh, he's got a backpack and he's reaching in the backpack and he's pulling out pictures and laying them down at grave sites. Mm-hmm. So Coach K walks over and he says, sir, um, you know, my name is Mike Shashevsky, and I'm the head men's basketball coach of our Olympic program. And I'm wondering if you would tell me what you're doing here today. And the young man looked back and he said, Coach, I know who you are. <laughs> he says, uh, This was my team. Yeah. It's the gravesites. Yeah. He said, We had a mission, didn't go as planned. And these are pictures of me and them in better days. And then Coach asked him to come talk to the players, and he did. And this soldier walked over and he started telling our players this greatest collection of talent ever assembled, right? Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Starts talking, well, uh, among the greatest collections of talent ever assembled. Starts talking to him about what it meant to be part of something bigger than yourself. What it meant to truly care for the guy to your left or right, right? Um, what did it mean to, uh, what did self-sacrifice really look like? And then he started talking about the idea, uh, he, started, he started talking about survivor's guilt he wasn't the day the, there the day that it happened with his mm-hmm. comrades, but he wished he had been. And he became emotionally, and he turned around, he walked away. Coach K leans in right about there, and he said to the players, you know, gentlemen, this is why I brought you here today. Wow. Because I want you to feel what it means to wear the letters USA on your chest. Wow. And those – a team – felt its purpose right they knew who they were in service of they knew why it mattered they knew what the letters really stood for and it was made clear to them because they felt it through an experience and the great teams um the great leaders create those feelings for those that they are um that that they are asked to lead
1: i mean it's just a powerful story i mean when you go and you have a so many great stories that you tell uh, organizations that you work with. But when you sit there and you tell that story, if, I, if I'm on the other end of that story and I'm the uh, senior sales manager and I hear that story, I'm like, that's incredible. Now I have to figure out how to get my team to not just buy in but believe in and I have to get a singleness of purpose and I've got to get them to attach emotion to the vision that I've created for them. How do you see the successful ones do that? How do the business
0: sure. teams do that? So there are three ways, actually, there are three pieces that work in this space. There are three kinds of, so to me, when and, and I've got a whole series of conversations with great winners about how they create their version of feel it moments. Mm-hmm. Coach K calls them feel it moments, but it's a moment where your team um, is inspired to remember that they are part of something bigger than themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all wired, we're hardwired, to want to be in community, most people, right? They're the complete outliers, but most of the rest of us are hardwired to wanna be part of a team, part of a community. So the three are that first there's your product impact, right, what is your product, what is it that you're selling that actually, what does it do for the people who are able to to be, uh, who use it? it, how does it change the dynamic of those you're serving, not selling to, right? Right. So the first is your product impact. Who does your product impact and, and why? What does it mean to them? And it could be that you have to look downstream, not just who you sell it to, but how those who you sell it to um, are able to have a, maybe a better environment. Many, maybe their life is better. Maybe they are a more efficient company, which means they get to hire another person, right? Mm-hmm. So you just change the dynamic of one family by selling that, you know, by doing something to help that, that group. The second, The second theme is your community impact. Um, let's say you work at a restaurant and, and once a week you are, uh, you're helping some charitable organization within your, within your, um, community, uh, by raising funds for them. And, uh, now most people, that's just a, that's just a night for them. The truly great teams are then at the end of the night, bringing that charity back to tell us what you're going to do with what we just gave you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we collectively, our organization, our team, our employees Just created an opportunity for you. Now tell us more about what you're going to do as a result of that. Because at the end of the day, the charity gets to go do more because you as a team delivered for them that night, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't actually, you don't work for the charity, but you support the charity. And now let us know how that works. And the third, the third one is your teammate impact. Mm -hmm. And that's where you look and say, um, what do we do for each other? And, and how does being part of our team, how is it different and better and more impactful to you than being a part of another team? You know, my little company here, and you've, you've met part of my team Ed. um, you know, we on a, on a every other month basis, we take an afternoon of a Friday off and we go do, um, we go in service of one of our employees. Hmm. Um, You know, a couple months ago, our IT guy, his his grandmother had passed away, but she had lived a really good last couple of years in a nursing home that he is convinced helped keep his grandmother alive longer. Wow. So we spent the afternoon serving meals to the employees of the nursing home. That's awesome. In between our meals and in between serving meals to them, he got to tell us stories about his grandmother, right? Mm. So we got to know him better. And he got, to do, he got to know we cared about him because mm-hmm. we took time to go do something that mattered to him. So, how do you find those things? What do they look like? What does it mean to be part of a team? Mm-hmm. Because we we perform differently, we show up differently mm-hmm. when we believe we're responsible for someone, someone to our left and our right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and really, when you look back at that, by serving everybody, served absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is sort of three ways um, to get the team to believe in and attach emotion. Product impact, community impact, and teammate impact. Yep. Yeah, and, and we've talked about greatness and we've talked about uh, individually, collectively. Let's talk about that last one being a great teammate, can you talk about the most recent book you released, um, about obviously one of my all time favorite cubbies, even though he was there for a very short time, but talk about impact, uh, David Ross, can you talk a little bit about, uh, being a great teammate and what that book meant to you and, and the journey, again, there's that word, the journey about how that all came together.
0: Sure. David and I have been buddies for many years. Uh, he lives actually in the same town I live in, Tallahassee, Florida. And, um, uh, but he, it was time for him to do a book, and it turned out to be a, a really great time for him. They were heading into the last season that he was ever going to play in Major League Baseball. Yep. He was playing for the Cubs. Mm-hmm. And many people thought the Cubs could win the World Series. Now, anybody that was a Cubs fan knew not to believe that, because the second you believe they're going to win, they're going to lose, right? right. Break your heart. Right. Yep. Uh, but he goes there. Um, but the story of David Ross is that his career doubled in length. Uh, he, he played 15 years in the Major Leagues. It's amazing. Career doubled in length when he learned how to become a better teammate. You know, talent can take you so far, but when you can make others better, you have a raw ro- you have a roster spot in almost any organization, right? And and he became that guy that made others better. We say all the time that if you become a great teammate, you learn how to become invaluable uh, without ever being most valuable, right? David was the, the I mean he was a backup catcher right, right but right. he made the team better he, he was a it was a driving force in everything that he was he was constantly attentive to what others around him needed he was looking at body language he was bringing guys together when they needed to be he just knew what was happening because he was he inserted right. himself into the lives of others yeah. most teammate most of us we want to do our thing and go home right david ross was like i want to do my thing and make sure we're all together in this thing right and by becoming a great teammate, um, he became the heart and soul of this team, loaded with all stars, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in fact, that, that year, 2016, um, the you know it felt like three quarters of the all star team uh, that lined up in uh, you know in uh, in the all star game was were Chicago Cubs. Right. Uh, David Ross was not one of them, right? Yeah um he could have been the
1: manager but, for that team though <laughs> he
0: could have but he ends up he, you know he goes to the seventh game of the world series uh hits a home run in his last at bat when the game is over they carry him from the field when the game is over now he's yeah. a backup catcher but he got carried from the field because he was a great teammate
1: well and think about this because I want, I want to get into this a little bit more i'm asked quite often with organizations i work with okay i've got these guys and they they're big time producers they're high performers but they are not great teammates? Can we ever develop them into a great teammate? Can you take us back to the defining moment when David Ross realized I've got to change and it's on me. I need to learn to be way more selfless than I'm currently being because I think it's very important for these organizations and teams to know that it's learned team, behavior. Yes, it's a learned behavior. Yeah. Can you take us back to that? David
0: Ross is the perfect example of, the yeah. of his learned behavior. He, uh, he was a um, it was the only period in his career when he was a starting catcher was in Cincinnati. And, uh, and, uh, there was a game in the middle of August and Cincinnati was already out of the playoff hunt. Uh, midway through the game, the manager, Dusty Baker yanks David from the field, puts in the backup. And as soon as the game is over, David, David storms into his office, um, you know, slams the door asks very aggressively why the manager had made that choice. And, uh, and Dusty Baker looked up and said, "Excuse me, but but who are you? Like you know." And he said, "I'm your starting catcher." And Dusty said, "You might not be for long." Mm-hmm. He said, "I don't know if you got it, but our team just lost out there." But the second the game was over, you're in here talking about your situation. Like you don't care about the rest of the team; you just care about you. He said, "That's not good form." And David Ross had a few choice words, storms out of the office, and that afternoon he gets cut from the from the team, mm-hmm. loses his job. And he gets picked back up in in Boston for the for the remainder of the season, um, because they were looking for a third string catcher. Right? And he was right. a starter. Right. Now he's a third stringer. Right. And, but at the end of that third string, at the end of that run with the Red Sox for the, that season, uh, Theo Epstein grabs David, pulls him into a locker room, pulls him into a private office, and says, "You know what? When we went to sign you, we almost didn't because the reputation you have is that you're a bad teammate. When you think about you." when you think we should be thinking about us, right? And we didn't see that in the short time we had you, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to sign you again next year. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it's... We it's, don't have a spot for you next right. year, but what we'll tell you is that if you're going to stay in this game, you should know that that's what the world is saying about you. You're a bad teammate. And David came home uh, to Tallahassee, sat down and, with his wife and said, if I ever get a chance to play again, I don't ever want those words to be said of me again. How do I become a better teammate? And he started studying what it meant to be a better teammate. He started asking questions of leaders and people. And pretty soon he started saying, okay, if that's what a great teammate looks like, I'm going to make myself look like that. I'm going to do those things authentically. I'm going to bring that to the team. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he became so good at it that by the time his time in Atlanta was up, that was where he signed next. Mm -hmm. Uh, Half the teams in baseball were lined up to sign him because he now was deemed in baseball a great teammate. right? And he had all these job opportunities. And so it was a really great lesson, right? We create opportunities for ourselves when we learn to serve
1: others. Well, and in, in within that story, There's something he did that amazes me, and I know you and I had talked about this. He was so intentional about it, and a lot of times people at that level, they don't want want to keep it a secret that they're trying to become a better teammate, that they're trying to become more selfless, and it's hard for them to check their ego. I mean, he did something that blew me away. Can you talk about that with the the trainer? Yeah, yeah, so
0: he went into the the trainer's room, which is where baseball players kind of congregate pregame. And, um, started asking everybody that was going through the room, you know, tell me about the best teammate you ever had. Tell me, what do you think it means to be a great teammate? What's, give me an attribute. And he started writing them down on this board and he started, and he created a list of the attributes of a great teammate, what it meant, what it, what it looked like. Um, and then he started challenging himself every day. Am I bringing these things to the, to, am I this when I walk through the door? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he started challenging his teammates are you this when you walk through the door? Pretty soon they all went to work on kind of creating a, an environment where they were a team of teammates. Right. And, uh, and, and they outperformed their talent every year, um, because they were in support of each other.
1: That's amazing. So let's, let's shift, let's take that over to the Golden State Warriors and what they have done. And okay, they have a collection of talent now, but it wasn't always that way when, when Steve Kerr took over and, and, I mean, Steve Kerr is the consummate professional. Um, He was as a player. He is as a coach. How have they built what they have built in in Golden State?
0: Well, I think a big part of it is this sense that um, uh, they're so – they have figured out a selflessness Mm -hmm. in the way they play, right? Um, That I mean, just – I mean I I know these, I know the beauty of recording a podcast with you is that this isn't going to run for several weeks but just as it happens last night oh don't it, you're, you know the the third best player Clay yeah. Thompson hit 14 three-pointers right I mean it's just yeah. now when your third best player can do that um and he's okay with with being declared the third best player I right? it doesn't bother right. him that that's what you call him he doesn't his ego doesn't need to be stroked in a way that right. says I need to be thought of and 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 declared the same as the as the guys who are also um, all stars. Uh, when 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 you can create an environment, right? So this isn't always about the players. Sometimes it's about the environment, where um, we're not going to let anyone's ego uh, take us off task. Uh, you create this culture of uh, of exceptionalism that's hard to beat.
1: Right, and and talk a little bit about that in the business world. What you see and what you work with teams on, and creating that environment, how they go about doing that.
0: Well, the the key is, um, as a leader, you know, we always a lot of times we find ourselves focusing on our our lowest performers. Right, we spend all of our time trying to build them up. Um, the truth is that that the best. I me, mean, Phil Jackson once told me that his greatest gift was that his best players, no matter where he you know, whether it was Chicago or, or LA, his best players, his most talented players, were also his hardest workers. Mm-hmm. Right? They set a bar for everybody else, and um, and so that becomes that. If I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, gosh, what's a corporate application? Focus on your very best. Make sure that person is bringing it every day, and recognizes, and that person appreciates the responsibility. Uh, that, they, that they have to shape the culture for all the others. And, uh, and, the, and the better they are um, and the more they bring, the better those around them will, will perform.
1: Right. And, and that's a perfect setup for, for my next question, because embracing your role, regardless of what your role is, Clay Thompson, the third best player, but then you go for 14 threes against the Bulls, you know, regardless, uh, the bench player, but your hardest workers don't always mean they're the most verbal leaders. Like you take a Michael Jordan. I mean, he was relentless and he was brutal and it was awesome, but he wasn't going to be empathetic with you. But that's all part of it. that's all part of the dynamics of, the, of great teams. Can you talk about that?
0: Well, so an, an important an important discussion point right here real quick is that yeah. is that um, there's a different chemistry for all great teams right Golden State uh, Michael Jordan wouldn't have fit in the Golden State Warriors, right As incredible as he is, um, he was such an overwhelming dominant personality it would have been difficult for him to have uh, allowed a clay Thompson to feel, uh, you know, there's just, there's something about different teams and different, and each one, when the great teams come together, they all have, there's a, there's a slightly different chemical composition. And, and and so there's no one answer, right. There is no one way to build a great team. Uh, But, but uh, you know, uh, but Jordan uh, obviously was, uh, was incredible in the way he pushed others by saying, look, how can you, uh, how good do you want to be? Right. And, and if they say, and no, uh, name one person in that environment going to say, I want to be, I want to be the fifth best player on the team. Right. <laughs> I want to be average. Right. No one says that to Michael Jordan. And if they say, I want to be great. He says, follow me, mm-hmm. follow me. I'll show you what it takes. I'll show you what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to do those things, I promise things will be better for you than, than, uh, than
1: anything you can imagine. Right. Right. And, and there's so much to be said about that when, when your best player is your, your hardest worker and, it, and then you have to have followers. You have to have people that are positive followers that embrace the role and then understand that. Have you seen that over time? I mean, I know you've seen it, but can you, you talk a little bit about the ability to buy in and believe in and to be a follower in your role, but yet, yet work on your self-leadership.
0: Sure. David Ross. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll go right there. Right. David Ross never believed he was the, he didn't even think he was the top 15, you know, on a 25 man roster. He didn't see himself in the top 15 mm-hmm. uh, on most of the teams he played on. Right. Um, but as he was, where, where he went at the end of his career was, I don't have to be the best player to be a leader. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to. What I can do to be a leader is um, to prove engaged, to, to, to be engaged, to be authentic um uh, to want to win, right? I'm not I'm not on this team just because I'm a good guy. I'm on this team to contribute, right? So right. they're highly competitive. Right. Um he worked on those uh, elements, but yeah, there was a there's a perfect example of a guy that was nowhere near the best player on his team. Right. Uh but who led.
1: Right. Right. So of all the all the folks in all the situations and incredible environments you've been around, I, I think it would be safe to say that you agree with me on this, that working hard And having fun and enjoying yourself don't have to be mutually exclusive. Unfortunately, a lot of our society thinks that. So can you share some of the funnier moments or maybe one or two funny moments in sports that you've had from incredible leaders, whether it's in an interview or something you witnessed or whatever it is?
0: Well, I mean, one, uh, to that point right there, I mean, a lot of people look at Nick Saban and say the man is joyless, right? (laughs) Uh, The truth is... um, you know, when you ask him that, he'll tell you, you know, if you're in a private or, you know, he's not the best in press conferences, but in right. in private settings, he'll tell you, you know, I don't understand that. Like just people, people show joy in different ways. I'm, I, my joy is in uh, feeling like we we delivered on our commitment to be the best we can be today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that to me, that's, I, I get joy out of that. I mean, I don't show it the way you show it. Doesn't mean I'm joyless. Why do you, why do I have to look like you to be yeah, anyway? It's just interesting when you get to people. Um, uh, a lot of people th- say, well, gosh, look at the very best of all. They don't seem to be happy. They don't seem to enjoy themselves. The truth is they just, they, maybe they show it differently than we show it and that's okay too.
1: Right. Right. Well, let's take Joe Madden and back to Dave Ross, and I, I, I hate to be that Cubs fan that keeps going back to him, but the pajamas on the airplane, the different things they do to keep things lighthearted. I'm sure in your organization you do uh, some things to to keep that fun and the joy going. Um, talk a little bit about. I mean, what did Dave say about some of the crazy stuff they would do with the Cubs?
0: Well, you, you hit on pajamas in the airplane, or uh, you know, what's the uh, wearing your um, what you know? They they actually. Uh, they had a flight going out after Halloween, right? Yep. Um, yep. And uh, and so he so Joe Madden said, "I want each of you to take your kids trick or treating, or if you don't have kids, yep. I want you to go find a kid and go trick or treating." Right. But then whatever you're wearing to to trick or treat, wear that to the to the ballpark because that's what we're going to race to the <sighs> airplane and and wear on our flight on our flight to the next. I think it was actually during the World Series, um, but uh, definitely um,
1: playoffs, yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So he would he he encouraged them to wear. Uh, what they were wearing, and you know, to trick or treat to anyway, that's it, right? It's about it's it's about how do we make sure that there's seriousness in the moment, but we can appreciate it and 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 have fun with it as well.
1: right. You just touched on something that I didn't even plan to ask about, but I have to uh, kids, how important, not how important, but how challenging is it, and how do you do it with your schedule to find the blend? And I'm not going to say balance because there's really no such thing. We can pursue it, but there's no such thing. But how do you find that blend where your family doesn't begin to resent what you do? I saw it in college coaching, obviously, is, is where the family would really resent how much mom or dad was going all the time or how much they were consumed with their their position and their title and their role and their responsibilities outside of the family. How have you done it? Because it's it has to be difficult at times.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to claim that I have the answer to that, but I will, I, some of the things that we try is that, you know, I, I regularly try, I, I, um, I take one week every summer and each one of my children get to pick my schedule that week. Mm -hmm. They look at my schedule where I'm traveling and they get to travel with dad for a whole week. Right. You know, just on the road and, and outside of my speaking engagements, they get to pick whatever else we get to do. So I, I could, I'm, I'm in Washington DC delivering a keynote for Oracle Mm-hmm. And, um, and that night I'm staying in the American girl doll hotel <laughs> and, um, uh, and eating dinner with my daughter and her American girl doll. Right. How, how awesome is that? And, uh, you know, or I'll, uh, I'll have a speech this year, this last year, I was back in DC for another event and my son chose to, he wanted to go to the FBI crime lab and, you know, and the international spy museum. So I'm squeezing these in between the speech around the speech try to find ways to engage in one-on-one opportunities with them that will be experiences they'll remember forever.
1: That's so cool. And
0: and then I really had to learn this one. This was probably the most difficult for me is to stay present when I'm with them. So um, I, you know, when I'm in town, I drive to school every day if I can. And I, I don't have the radio on. I turn my phone off. I didn't do that for you, but I did it for them. (laughs) Hey, that's more Um, important to me. And, uh, and and I, um, and we talked, you know? And I'm, so when I'm with them, I'm present. And, uh, when I'm at home with them at dinner, I don't answer the phone. If it rings, I don't care who's calling Right. We're we're at dinner. Right. And whatever it is can wait 30 minutes. And, um, I had to learn how to do that because that I'm not wired that way. I'm wired to answer the phone. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, it became, it just became some life choices I had to make.
1: Right. And it's okay to struggle with it. I I, you know I have clients all the time like I must be a bad person. I must be awful. I still struggle with I'll I'll sneak a peek at my emails. Well, I mean it's just the world we live in, right? Right. You gotta keep working at it.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, as we as we wind down here, I I wanna talk a little bit about the one word that keeps coming up journey. All right. The journey um to greatness. And you have a program coming out that I really want to talk about. Um, I believe it comes out December 1st and I know you're not supposed to timestamp podcast, but we already have. So I have your papal blessing to do that. So December 1st, a journey to greatness. Can you tell us about this unbelievable master course and you know, how you came about putting it together, what it hopes to accomplish and how you're going to accomplish that?
0: Sure. So one of the things we were looking at was, as you referenced the book that I wrote a number of years ago, based on those 2,500 interviews on asking those great winners what did you do? What's the habit? What's the thing you 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 believe um, you wove into your being that made you that separated you? And so we broke those down in the top sixteen answers, and, uh, and we developed a thirty day course that's uh, that basically walks you through the habits of high performance with workbooks and uh, and but each day it's a twenty to twenty five minute uh, window of commitment we ask of you, and if you take the course. You know, you go through it and over the course of 30 days, you actually learn through storytelling and, uh, and the, um, and, and audio input from some of the great winners that I've had the chance to talk to. You learn the habits and you talk and you learn how you can apply them into what you do. And that's the thing that's beauty about beautiful about these 16 habits is there's not a single one of them, um, that it, that it doesn't matter where we are, uh, from an age or economic or, or physical conditioning, we can actually do these habits of high performance because they're, they're not based on your physical gift, as I said earlier. Um, so our goal was to build a course that allowed people to kind of make their way through, um, the journey that I've been watching and learning and studying these last 30 years and, uh, and to do it in 30 days. And so, uh, the course goes live December 1st, as you said, we're very excited about it. So it's my first ever virtual learning course opportunity for me to do what I do right, and allow people to grow um, by, by what we do.
1: That's fantastic. And will they have lifetime access to the course?
0: They do have lifetime access. There's all kinds of neat little, like, I mean, we're so confident in it. We actually created a a um, 100% money back guarantee on it too. Love you know, they, they they invest in it. It's, it's not that expensive, $399. And, you know, and if they do it, they, um, and they get to the end or they get wherever they are and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm not growing. I'm not getting better. Um, you know, uh, we're, we believe enough that we believe in it to the level that we are willing to make that kind of an offer. And care that that's
1: cool. So cool. How awesome was it putting it together? How much fun did you guys have?
0: The best experience of all, um, yeah. because obviously, um, for each one you get to tell them some story that helped me, put a to put a face on what it looked like what does that characteristic look like who and some of the faces are extraordinarily famous and others are not but they but you see through the um the the discussions and the lessons um why this is so uh why this is so important and if we can go on the journey you know um we uh we're we're assured of becoming
1: of being better tomorrow than we are today that's phenomenal. And and so on December 1st, courses backslash Don Yeager.com. I think it's
0: courses.Don courses Yeager. Courses.Don
1: Yeager. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yep. That's why I looked at you inquisitively with those the eyes of a question. So courses.Don Yeager.com. Uh, and where else can our listener find out more about you or connect with you socially? Um, sure. Where else can they do that?
0: I'm, I love the, the world of uh, social media where, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Instagram LinkedIn are my four that I really okay. focus on okay um, but then uh, you know the website Don we actually offer a quote every day we send you a quote every day if you want one uh, from some leader that's inspired me um, I I've been collecting quotes my whole life and uh, for about four years now we've been sending out a quote every day to about about so cool. 25,000 people and it's really neat to kind of be part of someone's daily inspiration. It's kind of neat.
1: I had a a good friend of mine who did something for his kids when they were growing up, he had a big fishbowl in the kitchen. Okay. And he he would write quotes out and he stuck them in the fishbowl and on their way out to school every day, he would you know, stick his hand, the the, the children would stick their hand in fishbowl, pull out a quote and read it, you know, what daddy wrote that day to be something inspirational. And then they'd go off to school. And he did it all through about late grade school, middle school and high school. So as you know, my children are a little young now. So the only reason they stick their hands in fishbowl is to actually grab fish. fish, We haven't got there yet, but I'm collecting all your daily quotes for that sole purpose. I meant to tell you that. So I
0: have to tell tell you, so I made a tragic error the other day. I actually, my, my little girl, uh, who's nine, said, "You know, impossible is my least favorite word, right?" Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, I love it when my when I'm, I that tells me I'm raising her right. If impossible <laughs> is her least favorite word, right? So I made that my quote of the day. So my nine year old was the quote of the day, sent out to all these thousands of people, including several of her teachers at her school who signed up and 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 get yeah. my quote of the day. Yeah. And she was so she was so sure that was big time. That now she and my son every day are trying to come up with some <laughs> quote. Daddy, you can have that one if you want to. You can go ahead and post it to all of your friends and yeah. You know now now they want to be the quote of the day every day, right? And
1: when you right. don't, you're the bad guy.
0: Oh yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. that is outstanding. Well, good. Yeah. That's good. It gives her something to to, to do, I aspire yeah. to. That's awesome. Yeah, cool. um, well, hey, uh, Don, I can't thank you enough. But, and to find out more about the the Molitor Group, go to the dot com. Obviously. Uh, The podcast, The Athletics of Business, we are are blessed to have Don here with us today. Um, And our other amazing guests are TheAthleticsOfBusiness.com, iTunes, as well as Stitcher. Uh, And I do have a Facebook page, uh, which is uh, my name, Ed Molitor. We have uh, the Molitor Group Facebook page. On LinkedIn, I am the Molitor Group or Ed Molitor. I love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. Um, at Twitter, uh, it's at the Molitor Group. And Instagram uh, is my name, Ed Molitor. And um, I cannot say thank you enough. And I can't wait to, to share this with everybody. And, and really, thank you for doing what you do. Because you, um, everyone who's in your position doesn't necessarily share the stories and share the lessons and isn't as intentional. Um, about other people's growth. So the amount of value that you add um, is, it's hard to describe. And folks like myself, we get it and we do appreciate it.
0: Ed, thank you. Appreciate it. It means a lot to me.
1: All right. Have a great day.
0: Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there. Think, act and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.